Special thanks to Space Baby, Scott Kroom, and Dylan Borghart for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. The global pandemic has hit our day jobs hard. This is now our full-time jobs. If you want great content and can afford a few extra bucks, consider becoming a Southpaw supporter on Patreon. If you want to show everyone else your solidarity, we now have an online store full of Southpaw swag. You can find links to both our store and our Patreon at southpawpod.com. When it comes to left media, we cannot exist without your support. This is Sam. This is John. And this is Southpaw. So you might be noticing that I've done a lot of interviews prior to the protest and right at the beginning of the lockdown. The reason why is because I record a lot of my interviews weeks, sometimes months ahead of time. And normally I don't have to preface them because there isn't some world changing event happening. Because the topics that we discuss on this podcast are perennial, they're evergreen, in that a lot of times we're talking about problems and injustices and ideas that are not new, but continuations of systemic problems. So even though these interviews have been recorded earlier, the fact that they are still topical and probably even more poignant now shows how relevant everything about this podcast has been and highlights how little attention there has been to the problems that we discuss, but they need to be. And part of the reason why these problems continue is because the political discourse allows only for two narratives, both white, which shuts out people of color and the voices of the oppressed. So in my conversation today with John Vircher, which was recorded right at the beginning of the lockdown, you might find that everything we're discussing might enhance even your understanding of the current protests, because racism and white supremacy is something we've been dealing with for a long time. And so for me, as host of this podcast, but also for most of our guests, regardless of the current protests, we always came from a place where we knew these protests, this type of uprising and rebellion was inevitable because the amount of injustice and selective oppression that exists in this country was building to a point where it can no longer be ignored. So while other people are shocked, we knew people were suffering. And so this is why independent media like this is important, because we're much more grounded and connected to the reality for most people. And most other media is not, because they cater either to rural racists or pearl-clutching suburban racists. And that's ultimately the problem with our two-narrative system. So I enjoy this interview, and I think you'll get a lot out of it. So I recently finished a book called Three-Fifths by John Vircher. I'm a voracious reader, and one of the reasons why is because I'm really easy on myself as far as finishing books. So I try to start as many books as I can so I can quickly find the book I'm going to stick with. This is how I end up finishing a lot of books. It's a numbers game. 
So I picked up three-fifths thinking I'll start it and see what happens, then ended up tearing through the book in a matter of days. And then by some good fortune, I was connected to the author through the martial arts world. We have author and martial artist, John Vircher. Hi, John. Hey, Sam. How you doing? So I know people who like to write. I know people who like to fight. But why do you like doing both? <laughs> Well, I don't do as much fighting nowadays, if any. Uh, sparring is probably about the, as far as it gets. But uh, the thing that stands out to me about both is that I think in a lot of very similar ways, they're both about self-discovery, right? They're about challenging yourself to be your most vulnerable self, right? Uh, I think the the best writing the writing that sticks with us, the books that we can't forget long after we finish them are ones where the author either creates characters that are, that are so incredibly vulnerable or which usually is, you know, some manifestation of the writer themselves. And I think we're our best martial arts selves when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable to being uh, defeated, to being tapped out, to being submitted. It's, it's in those instances where we experience growth. So, um, as much as both of those things scare me, <laughs> uh, I, I think I have the tendency to, to tend to run towards the things that do scare me. And so I think it's why I'm so almost equally attracted to both things in my life. Yeah, not even in sparring, but even when you're just practicing and drilling, let's say, especially with, grappling, you have to give your back to your opponent so they could practice the rear naked choke, or you have to give them your neck so they could practice a choke period. So you have to be very vulnerable where you have to literally give them your back and trust them not to kill you. Yeah, that is very parallel to what you have to do uh, to be an insightful writer. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the the most insightful readers will call bullshit if you don't right i mean I, I, I honestly like i think they they are readers that that are well read and 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 uh familiar with when somebody is not doing it will will be very aware of that right so i think in order to to both be successful and also to you know in, in terms of like a a monetary sense or, or a volume of, of books sold sense, but as well as to be successful in creating art that is meaningful to people. If you're not giving essentially all of yourself to it, then you're, you're, you're wasting your time. And I think that's also very true of martial arts. I think it's in some ways harder to do in martial arts sometimes because of the, the ego that we, whether we want to deny it being there or not, I, I mean, I know I'm horribly guilty of it. I have to, I have to be very conscious of myself, consciously say to myself, okay, you don't have to win here. Like, like settle down and it doesn't always work. Like it doesn't always happen. I'll be the first to admit, and I'm sure my training partners will tell you the same, but, uh, it, as long as you're conscious of it and you pursue it, then I think then there will eventually come a point where you can let yourself do it enough to experience growth, if that makes sense. What happened first, your love of writing or your love of martial arts? <sighs> That's a good question, man. I don't, it's, 
I mean, I can go back as far as being six or seven years old, laying on the carpet in the middle of the living room, watching Saturday morning Kung Fu theater after the cartoons went off and just being fascinated with it. Um, but also being fascinated with the stories being told, you know, um, I was also that guy that like with my GI Joe action figures, man, I was telling like screenplay length stories <laughs> with my action figures and, and never realizing that in some way or shape or form that that was, uh, writing in a sense. So I've always been fascinated with storytelling as a kid, uh, equally fascinated with martial arts as a kid. I, I didn't, I, I didn't find the courage to start taking martial arts until I was in high school. Um, and I think it was then because I like, I had kind of stopped growing for a while and everyone else did. So team sports weren't really on the radar, not to mention I wasn't super athletic, so it wasn't really happening anyway. Um, and you know, by the time I was taking Taekwondo, you know, it was, it was right amidst the fervor of the karate kid and everybody was signing up to take karate or, or some form of martial art. Um, so long answer short, I'd say they probably developed right around the same time. Um, and in retrospect, kind of going back to your first question, it's possible one might've informed the other and I just never knew. So in a way then a fight itself is storytelling. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I see it in, in the fight analyses that you guys do on uh, the Southpaw page. I mean, every, every fight tells a story, not not just about the fight itself, but I think you you learn something about the individual in a fight, right? I mean, because even, even though in the cage and, and on the mats, it's in a controlled setting, there's rules, but there's still an element of who that person is when the chips are down, right? Like, you know, and, and I think that's what to me also makes the most interesting writing is when a character is in trouble, right? You, when you see a character in trouble, you're going to know the truest aspects of their personality based on how they get themselves out of that situation. So this makes me curious about the very first, maybe short story you wrote. Was it a story about fighting? Was it actually a very like primordial version of three fifths? You know, it's funny, man. I don't, I've never written a short story. What? I, I can, yeah. I have always been, uh, anytime I thought I had a short story, I couldn't let it go. Like the, the hardest part for me about reading short stories and, and especially writing short stories is I, I got to follow it to its natural end. Right. And sometimes almost all the time with short stories, especially if they're really well done in terms of developing a character. I don't just want that one piece and snippet of their life. I, I need a longer, I, I got to see the arc, right? I need to see a small character arc within a story for me is not as interesting as the longer arc, how they handle not just adversity, but the good times and how they handle sort of the medium times. Like all of that stuff is fascinating to me. So I, I never wrote a, a short story. <laughs> so you skipped the short story writing phase and went straight to writing books. Sort of, sort of. I started with screenplays, actually. Um, I uh, the, the original concept for this was over 20 years ago, and I, and I started it as a screenplay because I was so fascinated with movie storytelling. And, um, you know, I think it had coincided right around the time when, like, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck had, had made all this success writing their own movie. And I was like, shit, I can do that. 
Uh, so that, that was the original iteration of this, but, uh, it developed into a novel later in life. Mm. Do you still feel then like you're a very visual storyteller? Oh, very much. Yeah. I, I, I tried to write what I want to read and what I like to read is our stories that can be visual, but at the same time, not so heavy in like adjective use such that I, that there's nothing left to my imagination. I, I like description that is spare, but evocative, if that makes sense. Like the, they, you know, that they use words in such a way that I can conjure my own image without too much work, but at the same time, they're not doing the work for me. If that, if that makes any sense. That actually defines what visual storytelling is then. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> so then let's talk about it. Let's talk about your book, Three Fifths. I don't know the best way to explain what the book is about without giving too much away. So can you summarize the book for listeners? So I'm, I, I am very well practiced in this because uh, in order to try and get an agent and get published, you kind of got to have your elevator pitch. So I'm ready to go on this, Sam. Um, so Three-Fifths is the story of a biracial black man who has been passing for white his entire life. And the night that his best friend gets out of prison, he uh, meets up with him to realize that he is now a, a radicalized white supremacist. And in the uh, early hours of their reunion, they end up in a confrontation that uh, ends in a hate crime. And so the book follows his journey over the next 48 hours of sort of reconciling the lies of his past with the truth of his present, how he's going to manage the situation, but also is he responsible some way ultimately for the situation that he's in. Um, and it also deals with uh, sort of a, as subplots deals with his relationship with his mother uh, and with the father he's never known who uh, comes back into the picture as part of the narrative. So we're actually still living in the shadow of the three-fifths compromise of 1787 in many ways, not just the historical power this gave red states, but also in institutionalizing the racist attitudes of this country. So the three-fifths compromise was about what counts as human, what is a human. And in that compromise, Black people counted as three-fifths of a person and a person being a white person. But this book doesn't take place in that era, nor is that law a plot point in the book. So how did this book come to be called Three-Fifths? It's centered on the idea that the protagonist has very little sense of himself. And the only way that he sought to define himself and the way others around him defined himself was by race. And so the idea that race defined what was humanity at the time of the Three-Fifths Compromise made sense to me in, in a sort of maybe more abstract, maybe not a, a, in exactly a linear way uh, to title the book that because um, I feel like the themes there are somewhat parallel. It's, it, it was also just sort of, uh, <laughs> there was a little bit of personal motivation to just bring the idea of the three-fifths compromise to a little bit more public attention. I can't tell you <laughs> how many people have said, what, I, I don't, I don't get the title. What does that mean? Or mm. I thought it was about alcohol. Why about alcohol? Be because of three fifths of alcohol, like three fifths <laughs> of like, which, which I do make reference to in the book, but that was all almost sort of like a wink and a nudge type of thing. Um, 
so that that was part of it because I, I I remember when I first learned about it, I, it was just it was so incomprehensible to me that that <laughs> that was part of our history. It was just it just blew my mind, and and I really like that you brought up the point that we're still living in the shadow of it because it was brought to my attention uh, maybe a couple months ago that there are some states now that are that are almost reliving this with prisoners where the prison population in some states is counted towards the census, even though those prisoners have lost their right to vote. And so it, it has to do with redistricting and gerrymandering and all these things, but they are basically being used in the same way in that they are, they are still not considered three-fifths, they're, they're three-fifths of a person because they have no right to vote, but yet their presence and their existence as prisoners of the state allow the the census to dictate how many electoral college votes uh, an area gets. I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. I feel like being aware of what the three fifths compromise is, is almost like a decoder ring for your book where you can enjoy the book, <laughs> but if you know what that is, then it frames the book in a different way that makes it different. It adds more depth to the book. I appreciate that. Thank you. I mean, that, that was hopefully the intention. So I'm glad uh, that in part it, serve that purpose. So you were mentioning this earlier about the white supremacist character. So white supremacy is a major theme in the book. There's the obvious white supremacy, as you mentioned, of the main character's best friend, Aaron, who is part of the Aryan Brotherhood. And most people consider that to be white supremacy. And if it's not that, if it isn't cross-burning and white hoods, it's not white supremacy. (laughs) But that's not true. So could you speak to us about white supremacy? Whew, man, that's a big question. <laughs> uh, and you could think about it in the context of the book, how you presented white supremacy in the book. Well, I think how I present it in the book is, is really just a microcosm of what we are experiencing all over again right now, right? With, with who's in the White House and who's running the administration right now. I mean, where it's it's the the thin veil that was there before his time has now just been torn right the hell off right i mean there's it's not veiled anymore like to to even say that there are dog whistles being used anymore is not even accurate right like it's just it, it has just continued to ramp up but but to say that it has ramped up is is almost to give excuse to how it was before which means that it wasn't as present. It's always been this present. It's just now we're in an era that, that sort of harkens back to a time when we were in the civil rights movement and then in the time before that, where we just sort of go in these cycles of where it seems to be more out in the open than it was. And then it kind of goes and it fades a little bit. It doesn't go anywhere. It's just its presence in our minds and, and the way it's presented changes to where it can be more subtle or it can be more, more blatant. So, I mean, uh, you know, when you ask what is white supremacy, I mean, short answer is it's what this country has been founded on. And we are seeing the, the damage in a way that I don't think we were ever able to see before only because of our access to the information, to, to the media. You know, it's, I mean, Police brutality and beatings were going on long before we had all these issues that we're aware of now. But 
we didn't have people videotaping, right? You know, Rodney King was the was one of the first, one of the biggest examples of that on on a, a personal video camera. Now everybody's got a camera in their hand, right? Everybody's got a video recorder. It, it can't hide as much as it used to. So it's not like it's it's not like it's changed in its presence. Uh, it's just we can see it more. I don't, I don't know if that fully answers your question, but that that to, I mean, to me, white supremacy is is unfortunately a foundational part of the history of this country. Being a neo-Nazi or or a part of a brotherhood is just a branch of that. It's almost like tumors to the cancer that already is there, but we don't always see it. That's a great way of putting it. Yes, I agree with that totally. Was part of this book then not just telling a character story, but also to tell a story of what white supremacy and racism looks like in the world? Yeah, and and I wanted to do it in a way that wasn't didactic, right? I didn't want to I didn't want to wag the finger at anybody. I didn't want I didn't want this book to be teaching a lesson. I wanted it to focus on three or four characters, sort of a day in the life kind of, but under really horrible circumstances. Because I I think it needs to I th- I felt like it needed to be said or shown in a way that the things that you might not think about or the things that you think aren't such a big deal for some can be life altering and life changing in a matter of days for others. Um, so I, I did want to, I, I maybe in a larger scheme, I wanted to talk about what it looked like in the world, but I almost wanted the story to spark discussions about what it looked like in the world. I didn't want to tell the story of what it looked like in the world. I wanted to talk about what it looked like in their world. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Especially when you said it's like a slice of life, because if it is like a slice of life, slice of life stories are about people's lives that we might not be aware of. So we just get to see a slice of it, this invisible life. Right. And so in the context of racism, then it's like, just because you don't think about it doesn't mean it's not happening or it doesn't exist in the world. And here's a slice of life example of what's happening invisibly. Yes, exactly. Something the main character Bobby struggles with is the idea of blackness. And one of the things you play with is a white person being darker than a light-skinned black person. We think of being a black person or a white person as literally being black or white, but there's much more to it than that. That blackness isn't just about how dark you are, and whiteness doesn't just mean you have light or white skin. Can you speak to us about this? Man, that's a that's another big question. You could almost do a, a <laughs> an interview just on that question. Yeah, we uh, I, I recently had a similar discussion about that because, you know, it's it at least in my experience, it's it's only been in the last few years where we've really been having these discussions around race being a social construct, right? Um, not that that conversation wasn't happening long before then, but it's it seems to be a, a, a topic that's coming more and more to the forefront. And so these ideas of whiteness and blackness were were created, right? I mean, it's not they are they are not fact; they are fiction. You know, there were there were there were Europeans that came from Europe to this country, and they weren't white until they got here. Um, and that was a creation based on all types of factors, and and it's become this pervasive disease that we we have to deal with now. Um, you know, it it. I think what it comes down to 
in some cases is more about cultural experience and your history and the history behind um, where you come from and where where your ancestors come from. Um, you know, to to speak to trying to define blackness or whiteness. I mean, it's a slippery slope in either direction, right? I mean, because you you the minute you start to try and define these things that are make believe anyway. Uh, you may almost be contributing to the problem, not not trying to solve it. Something I noticed, because I wasn't born here when I moved to this country, coming from a homogenous country like Korea, I wasn't aware of racism until you come here. You can't be apolitical, even as a child. Mm-hmm. The US will make you political because you will face it, you will experience it, right? And so even though I faced it as an Asian American, I saw that it was different for Black Americans, and it was worse. And one of the things I remember growing up was this confusion because it was just about Black skin, or it was always framed as about being about skin color. Mm-hmm. And I watched pro wrestling, and I would see Hulk Hogan, and he was darker than some of the Black wrestlers. Mm-hmm. Because of pro wrestling, I was really into like bodybuilding magazines. I just like thought they look cool, like superheroes, basically, right. like comic books. And so when I flipped through some of these magazines like Flex or whatever, some of the white bodybuilders, not even some, they were just darker than black people I saw in real life. And so I was like, well, they're dark. They're basically black skinned. Why aren't they hated? And so then I came to realize it's not just about the skin color, then they're not hated because they're European Mm -hmm. and you could be European and dark skin and that's okay. And so it goes back to your point about a lot of these groups became white once they got to the U.S. Whiteness was more about um, being European or your descent. That's right. And and it, it, there was an interesting conversation that I uh, had just actually just earlier today about how appearance tends to remove choice from you in terms of how you identify or as or how you are identified, right? Because you, you know, uh, if you are a light-skinned black person, or if you are biracial and light-skinned, but you identify as black, that that may be all well and good that you identify that way. But you may that you may have that choice taken away from you by the way people identify your appearance. So it's it's a really interesting point and question that you could probably de- debate and and uh, ponder over for hours upon hours about what what does it mean? Like just the fact that it is a social construct doesn't mean it doesn't exist and that we don't all operate under it. Right mm-hmm. now. Um, we would love, we would love that the idea that we've identified it as a social construct means it goes away and that we're, we're all just people, but there, there's even a danger in that, right? Because then you, you run the risk of erasing your cultural experience by saying that we're all just human and we're all just people. Like, I mean, yes, that's true, but it's also, one doesn't have to be at the exclusion of of the other, right? Like you can you can identify me and recognize my humanity, and also rec- recognize that I have differences, uh, what whether they're in my culture or how I was brought up or my history, that don't make me someone to fear. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does, and it actually uh, relates to the next question I have, because in your book, another idea that you address that is rarely addressed in pop media is the concept of passing, which relates back to whiteness. I feel like popular media to mainstream culture isn't fully comfortable about this idea 
that it gets fluid and to your point that it can get confusing. So can you explain to us what it means to pass in a racial context? Because earlier when you described the book, you even said the main character, Aaron, passes. Yeah, the, the, the passing narrative seems to have slipped, again, at least in my experience. So if, if I'm if I'm inaccurate about this and somebody hears, hears that I'm, that I'm wrong, that it's, that it is more prevalent than I think that would be great. Cause I, I, I love reading, uh, passing narratives because I'm always fascinated about other people's perspective on them. But to my knowledge, they're not, uh, they're not stories that are told very often. Mm-hmm. They were at a certain time. Like, um, one of the things that inspired me to, to write this and come up with this story was, uh, a movie that was also based on a book called imitation of life which was about a, a young black woman uh, who was passing for white. Um, because, <clears throat> frankly, especially for people in that era, which was in the early 1920s, 1930s, you, you, passed, because, you passed for white because of the proximity to power that it gave you. Not that it gave you uh, power over anyone else, but your proximity to power kept you safe. And and made you made certain benefits available to you that you would not have if you were considered black. So there there was another book called Nella Lar- by Nella Larson called Passing. Um, it's even been dealt with in uh, like sort of tangentially in certain crime fiction like Walter Mosley's Devil in a Blue Dress. So, the, but there there weren't a lot of stories at least as I felt modern stories being talked about it. Cause to your point, it's, it's not really addressed in, in modern culture. It's unfortunate, but U S politics has always been boiled down to binaries. It's this or that, which erases a lot of voices and concerns from the discourse. Exactly. Right. You know, we've got different celebrities and different politicians and, and uh, people from different walks of life that are mixed race, but they, they tend to make choices about, how they identify, right? Tiger Woods, The Rock, Barack Obama. Like there's, there's all these different, um, different people that identify themselves in different ways. Um, but, but to your question as to what it means to pass in a racial context, it does mean that you, at, at least historically, it, it meant that people that could pass for white um, because of whether or not it kept them safe from harm or allowed them to, to reap the benefits of whiteness. Um, that's what that meant. So something that creates tension in the book is that being able to pass for white is not the same as being white, especially for Bobby. We really simplify it that there is no racism if we don't judge someone by the color of their skin. And so Aaron is colorblind to Bobby and to a lot of liberals. That means you can't be racist because you're not judging them by the color of their skin. Right. But not being dark skin wouldn't be good enough for Aaron or even Bobby's racist grandfather. So then what is that hate about if it's not just about skin color or what you look like? I mean, is to me that is what it's about, right? I mean, the so much of of racism to me is grounded in fear, right? There's this fear and it, and it seems to be very particular to uh dark-skinned black men. Um and a big part of that uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the, the documentary 13th by Ava DuVernay, mm-hmm. um, but she brings up uh, the point uh, or brings up the film Birth of a Nation 
not not the most recent one the the actual one uh that was more, more or less responsible for the birth of the Ku Klux Klan um but in that there is a storyline of uh of course a white person in in blackface uh as a as a very dark-skinned black man who is essentially a savage that is there for the white women and there to to wreak havoc on uh white society um and and so it it created this sort of fear-mongering among white people and its effects are still felt today i mean it's uh so so i i would think that in answer to your question it's how how can it not be about skin color i mean it's you know there there are associations obviously that people then make with blackness once they have deemed someone to be black but there are there i think people as a result of of um some sort of a trickle down effect from that film and the the ideas that it produced there is there are certain attributes that i think racist white people give to dark-skinned black men that they might not necessarily give to light-skinned black men or black women um but it, but in particular that movie really generated uh fear and therefore hate of dark-skinned black men like a colorism on top of racism exactly so there's like a hierarchy within the racism and and i you know i mean colorism is sometimes a term that i think is used um within ethnic groups right or or with with other different groups but i but i agree with you that there's also uh, a colorism within racism right you, it it the the color seems to create de- some degree of the racism which is just a ridiculous concept but uh no no less true but one of the things that i noticed in the book in speaking about passing and with the character of Bobby is this idea of invisible blackness. Mm-hmm. So on top of the three fifths compromise, there's also the old one drop rule <laughs> that made it explicit that racism isn't necessarily about what you look like, but also about the purity of your blood. And even someone seen as a social justice advocate, Elizabeth Warren, bought into this idea mm-hmm. of race as a drop of blood. So it still exists to this day. So is the one drop rule also something that you thought about for this book? I mean, it certainly played into the ideas of identity and, and the theme of identity that's present. I, I didn't feel uh, a need to address it super explicitly. Um, however, I think sort of the characterization of the grandfather and the way he feels about his grandson before he discovers that he is that he has a black father and after sort of speaks to that concept and what it means to certain people you know <laughs> in your example elizabeth warren used it as a as a as a means to curry more favor among american indians whereas uh uh in the, in the book bobby's grandfather uh sees it as a reason to reject him and uh despite the fact that it changed nothing about who he was as a person, but that, that one drop made him uh, an object of hate as opposed to an object of love. So for the grandfather, who's so racist, even if his grandson, Bobby, looks white for all intents and purposes, it's still not good enough because there has to be a purity to whiteness. That's exactly it. It's almost like um, blackness is a poison. So even if you put a drop of poison, you can't see it, right? It mixes it with the water, but it ruins the whole thing. Very well said. 
Aaron has a backstory for his hate for black people, which humanizes him, which makes sense from a book perspective because he's one of the main characters. But Bobby's grandfather, who represents more of the typical racist, doesn't have a backstory like that. He just hates black people, which touches upon a question many of us have. Where does such deep-seated hate for other humans come from? Because people will chalk it up as hate for the other. But that sometimes feels like a cop-out to me. Because if it's an other, why isn't it just annoyance, right? Otherness doesn't necessarily explain intensity. So in working on this book, did you ever work that out for yourself? Why otherness goes all the way to intense hate? Like you mentioned earlier, fear of the unknown. How come sometimes unknown is just annoyance and sometimes is fear so great that you just hate them and don't value their life? God, that's a terrific question. I th- I've thought about that. Uh, it's sort of been a continual question in my mind. And I think being a, a father now has helped me understand it in a strange way, but I, I've sort of got this thing in my head that, like, you know, show me some, show me an adult who's a racist, and I'll show you a kid that used to play with other black kids until his parents told him that wasn't right. So I, I think that this, where it becomes hate and not just an annoyance is because it it almost becomes like a deep-seated tradition that it you know it's that's passed down mm-hmm. from one to the other and i think the more it's passed down from generation to generation it it takes a a, a it digs deeper roots right and i and i think um you know if i i think kids can be very intuitive and if they're taught that the other is wrong and the other is someone to hate they might see through a little bit of the fear that's there and and i think you know it we 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 tend to emulate those that we look up to the most and if they're telling us it's wrong and they're telling us we got to hate we're telling us we got to fear them even indirectly fear them through hate i i think that's where it comes from i mean it's nothing but a theory of my own It makes sense to me also as a person of color who isn't black, who wasn't born here, coming here and growing up here, you see that it's in the social fabric. So it's even easy for other minorities to pick up this hate or fear of black people. Mm -hmm. You could talk to people in other countries who are non-white and maybe they already have bad associations about black people, but what do they know about black people? They haven't even met them based on where they're from. And it might be because of the way they've always been represented in the media. And so the U.S. is the greatest purveyor of consumer media, right, of entertainment media. And so like my mother-in-law, she already has, she's from Korea, she already has some negative stereotypes about Black people, even though I don't think she's ever run into Black people in Korea, right? But it comes from, she watches a lot of American TV shows and movies, and maybe more recently, it's been trying to be changed. But it doesn't matter if it's recently being trying to be changed. Everything that she consumed prior to, let's say, the last five years, she's already consumed it. Right. And a lot of that already had the negative stereotypes. So I think coming here, the reason why, let's say, Asian Americans aren't as hated is because we're not built into the social fabric of racist hate into this country as much as 
the institution of slavery and the racism against Black people have been embedded into the social fabric of the U.S. That's a really insightful observation, and, and it's it's helpful to the to the to me the the whole dialogue about this because uh, to to have a, a quote unquote outsider's perspective now having been here to see you know because there are so many people that will deny that this country is founded on white supremacy like they you know it it, it puts the hairs up on, uh, on their neck and they and they get their back up about it and it's like well yeah okay truth hurts but you know to to hear it from someone who is is uh not who was born outside this country but is now a citizen of this country and understands and can see with a removed view sort uh, uh, sort of a removed view i mean you you're here but to to not be a part of the the racism experience of black folks and see that it is in fact woven into the fabric of the society i i think is a powerful comment to add to the discussion about this something you mentioned earlier was about trump and the era that he's produced right like you said it's not that he's necessarily created more racism it's more that it's more visible right now so because of that then why didn't you have the book take place right now? Why was the book set in the 90s? I think some of that was, uh, not, not even that I think, I know, that time period when I was in Pittsburgh as a college student was a, was a time of a lot of soul searching for me in terms of where did I fit and where did I belong? So it was it was sort of an exercise in putting myself into, putting my my brain into a time where I was really immersed in those feelings. I also felt like it was uh, an interesting time for conversations about race because the O.J. Simpson trial was happening and because that had happened in such close proximity to the unrest in L.A. after the Rodney King verdict, because people were talking about race in very open and brazen ways, much like they are now. Um, but what was always interesting about it, in, at least in terms of OJ, is like people were sort of couching it in that they weren't talking about race; they were talking about OJ. We're not talking about black people; we're talking about a football player. You know, like like somehow that those two things were were not the same. Uh, and so, to me, having that as a backdrop, like some of the conversations in the bar, some of the conversations in the restaurant, uh, f- having that as a backdrop for this very personal story uh, of Bobby and, and Aaron and his, and his mother and his father. Uh, to me, one sort of played off the other. And, and so that was the choice there. Well, something you mentioned earlier was about birth of a nation and the intense blackness of the blackface and how that triggers or has implanted in us this fear of extremely dark black men. During that era, I remember there was this controversy with OJ where his picture was darkened for a magazine cover. Remember this? Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. To make him scarier. Yeah. Totally forgot about that. Completely feeds into that narrative, though. Yeah, and they knew exactly what they were doing because they knew what that would trigger. Oh, that's amazing. I forgot all about that. So right now, we're in the middle of the pandemic for COVID-19. Are you surprised at all by the racism that we're seeing now? Or did (laughs) researching the book make you less surprised by any racism? (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 no. I'm not surprised at all. Uh, I wish I was, but... um, and and I and I will tell you that a, a a part of my lack of surprise also comes from the amount of time that I spent in healthcare. 
Um, so I was, I was a physical therapist for 10 years, uh, before doing what I do now. And, um, there are very well-documented studies and, and uh, white papers and things like that about the belief of, uh, black people's pain. Um, you know, there, it's often discounted by physicians, white physicians, uh, as either being overblown or, or entirely fabricated. And, and so, uh, it was only a matter of time before we started seeing reports about black people having less access to care or tests or, or any of these other things, uh, even to information about the pandemic, um, and and about how to maintain social distancing. It's been, so yes, no, none of this has been surprising me whatsoever. Disheartening, disheartening, of course, uh, especially because in the midst of a, a worldwide pandemic, um, we still can't get our shit together to take care of each other. Or even uh, the discussion now about the usage of the term Chinese virus, oh, where you have God. people saying, that's okay, because that's where it's from. It's, right. it's not racist. It's, it's unbelievable. I, I mean, well, so it's believable. Uh, it is uh, distressing and unfortunate. And, uh, you know, the, I, I, I still sometimes try to hold on to like just a sliver of like naivete that says, ah, it's not going to be that way this time. <laughs> like there's, there's no, the Chinese virus, like, come on. Like it just, that, that feels like an onion report. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like how is this still happening? Like we, we've got, I mean, we, the, we've made so much incredible progress in fields of science and mathematics and all these other things, but we can't, we can't not, call something the Chinese, but I like, it's just, it's man, I, I guess there is still a part of me that like holds on to the hope <laughs> that like that will not be. And then it's just like, nope, nah, yeah. America's gonna America. And there it is. Well, the whole Chinese virus thing now, after talking about your book and even about birth of a nation, it seems to make more sense because like what birth of a nation, a lot of people will downplay it saying it's just media is just a movie how can that cause racist actions or how can that cause the rebirth of the kkk right Mm -hmm. to your point things like that symbolic things you're planting a seed and then it will re-permeate out as something more visceral something more physical something much more hateful right and so with something like chinese virus then we can see how saying something like that people can brush it off like it's innocuous it's just words it doesn't mean anything but once it gets into the social fabric, it'll come back and it'll be a lot worse, right? Absolutely. And it won't go anywhere. Yeah, because that's the other thing. Once you do something like that and it enters the social fabric, it stays for life. It's a, it's a frightening fact. And, and, as, and we as parents have to figure out how to, how to have those conversations, which is like one of those things that I'm still... Like every day, uh, I'm still trying to figure out how, you know, uh, because I don't, I don't want to, I, I don't want my kids, I want them to hold on to that innocence that they have. Yeah. But I, but I also know that, that I will not be serving them or protecting them if I try to let them walk on, walk around with blinders about it. You know, it's, you, you keep, I, there's there's a part of me that keeps thinking like, well, maybe by the time they're this age, it's going to be all good. 
And it's like, no, no, that's not going to happen. Yeah, it is awkward conversations. So then about that, what was the response from your training partners when this book came out? Or do you keep the author side of your life separate from your gym life? Um, I think yes and no. I think maybe in the beginning, like <laughs> part of it was one of those things where like, I didn't want to be that guy to be like, Hey, I wrote a book. It might come out at some point. Like I might, you know, and then it had to just never happen. So, you know, there's part of, part of that was just self-preservation to be like, I'm not going to talk about it. Cause you can be like, Oh yeah. You're one of these guys that wrote a book. Uh, no, man, my, my gym has been am amazingly supportive. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of them came out to, uh, the launch that I did for it. Um, really, really been very cool. There's, there's one guy in particular who has been, uh, really like open to the exploration of his own implicit biases um and and really took a lot of stuff away from the book which is like exactly why i did it right like you know there there was always i always ran the risk of writing this to the echo chamber right like the people like you and i that that for the most part know this stuff and you know are know that racism is wrong but but there was also that hope in me that at, at the very least it would spark discussion and, and at the most get somebody to think differently, uh, uh, from, from the ways that they thought before. Um, and so the fact that even one person got that out of it, as cliche as that sounds like, Oh, if it only affects one person, then I'll, it'll have done what I wanted to do. That's exactly what the fuck I wanted it to do. Like, so it, it that the, the fact that it got to be somebody in a gym, where to your point, you do essentially put your life in somebody else's hands, um, was just so affirming that I was in the right place. Um, you know, that, that I was around the right people. Uh, so that, that, that has, um, the reaction there has exceeded any hopes or expectations I could have had, uh, about how they'd receive it. Actually, you said something that I think really ties a lot of these things together, which is implicit bias, even back to our question about what is white supremacy or this country being founded on racism and people don't want to believe it. It's because we're so used to racism being explicit, the KKK, the white hoods, right? Mm -hmm. White supremacy, 99% of it is the implicit stuff, the stuff you don't see. Right. Because really, the, the ones in the hoods, the neo-Nazis, how much of the U.S. population are they? They're not even 1%. Right. The rest of it is the implicit stuff, like that person you mentioned, that they carry around with them and not even realizing it, and that they're always making whiteness the de facto, the automatic standard, right? The default. It's the loaded P word, right? It's, it's, it's privilege. Yeah. You know, it's an unfortunate word because even, even outside of the discussions of white privilege, Privilege is like, that's never a good thing, right? Like, like when you, when you describe someone as privileged, especially if you're the person being described, you're like, fuck you, I, like, I worked for what I got. Like, you know, I don't, I'm not privileged. It, it really has that reaction when you associate it with white privilege. So it, it's, but, but that's exactly what you're pointing to, right? It's, it's not always this devil stroking his beard, uh, twirling his pitchfork, you know, that, uh, type of, of, organized hate you know there's it tends to be more subtle and insidious to your point um and so again to your point like if i if i could have if i get to one person who then maybe has a conversation with another person that's that's a goal achieved 
A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you'll help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. So we're talking about your gym and this is a fighting gym, right? This is a martial arts gym. Mm -hmm. And so because you are a martial artist and someone who's also competed in the cage and in the ring, did you have to fight the urge to make Bobby a badass fighter? <laughs> Not none whatsoever. Because, but because if <laughs> you didn't want to have him just like kick everybody's ass at the end. <laughs> well, I mean, like if the implication there is that any of this was autobiographical, I am not a badass fighter. Like there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing about me that is badass or uh, ridiculously brave or none of that. So, uh, no, the fact that Bobby was an ang- ang- anxious, neurotic mess. Uh, was probably much more indicative of of the writer than if I had made him a badass fighter. I think that is <laughs> kind of a cornerstone also to bad writing is because maybe sometimes you fall in love with your character, so then you want to have them have an easy way out. Exactly, <laughs> which which Bobby certainly did not. Yeah, maybe this is why there isn't as much crossover between martial arts and writing as you would expect, <laughs> because maybe even if the martial artist is actually pretty good at writing at the end, they're like, no, nah, he's just going to kick everybody's ass. <laughs> oh, wait, do you read my next one, man? It's uh, you, you won't get any of that there either. So two things I know about you that I don't know, even if you're aware of, Uh-oh. you started writing in earnest, let's say as part of the second act of your life. You also started fighting in combat sports and training in the second act of your life. So what's going on there? <laughs> I love the way you ended that question. So what's the deal, dude? Um, yeah. So, oh man, it's going to sound uh, sappy and overly romantic and I'm going to try and not get choked up, but uh, a lot of it stems back to the the love of an amazing woman, man. Um, when, when I met my wife, um, I think she's she's a the the best way I can describe her is she's a person of action. She doesn't believe in saying you're going to do something, right? It's like it's like not not uh if you say you're going to do something, then you got to do it and talking about it isn't enough. That's a writing rule too, right? Show don't tell. <laughs> oh yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um you know, I I had been a martial artist as a teenager, but never really fully committing to it. I mean, I, I had gotten my brown belt in Taekwondo, but then I went to college and it just kind of fell by the wayside. Right. Um, I had gone, I had gotten my undergraduate degree in English during this time. I had come up with this story. Uh, I did kind of do something with the screenplay, but when it didn't go anywhere, I kind of gave up on it. Um, you know, and when I became, uh, when it came closer to graduating, it was like, well, I can keep pursuing this writing thing uh, and not eat, or I can go into healthcare like my parents did and, you know, maybe have a decent job and and make some money, even though I may not 
be uh, pursuing that, which I love. But um, again, I, I like to eat. So um, spent a lot of time in that. And uh, when I met my wife and uh, as, as we got as things got more serious and we got to know each other better and, you know, she got to know my hopes and dreams and aspirations. She, she was very encouraging. Um, you know, uh, I think you and I had a discussion once offline about, um, sort of how I ended up actually training to, to fight and, um, whether it sounds corny or not, I, I, the, the first season of the ultimate fighter, had awakened sort of the, <laughs> the, the festering martial artist in me from, from high school and, and whether or not it had to do with being bullied as a kid, which, you know, I was and, and seeing that martial arts could be more of a sport than just, um, the sort of the Taekwondo tournaments that I had grown up with and seen, uh, it, you know, just sort of awakened something in me. And I was like, shit, maybe I, maybe I want to fight. And, you know, but, you know, but then most people would say, oh, maybe I want to fight. And then they realize what it takes and be like, oh, no, fuck that. I didn't really want to fight. And my wife was like, if you want to do it, you got to go after it, you know, see, see what you can see if you can see what you can do. Uh, and it became the same thing with the book. Like I, I was, I was hating healthcare, um, towards the end of my career. Like I just didn't want to do it anymore. Um, you know, you couldn't take care of people the way you wanted to. Insurance dictated so much about how much time you spent with people and, and the, the methods of delivery of care. And, um, you know, the, the creative itch had always been there and never stopped talking about that book and other books that I wanted to write. And she's like, you got to do something because you're, you're, otherwise you're, you're going to be miserable and you're always going to ask yourself when and why, and why didn't I do it? So, um, yeah, man, I, 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 <laughs> my I, I give all credit to my wife for for pushing me in that direction and that was a long answer but um that's that that would be why the second act because it, it took me getting to that point and took someone believing in me more than i believed in myself mm. so here's another thing i know about you now then your real life is full of cliches but not so many <laughs> cliches in your book so that's good <laughs> yeah man i some of it is very uh very uh bad storytelling but <laughs> but true so you know it's it's what what can what can i say yeah if it was like an actual autobiography right oh you met a woman so you wanted to pursue your dream of writing and yeah. then you watched the ultimate fighter and yeah. you wanted to I, try I it would, out. i would not watch or read that i would not watch that show and i would not read that book it's like <laughs> get the fuck out of here nobody that's, that's not real <laughs> So in martial arts, as you know, there's a lot that has to do with talent, but if you train enough, you can get very, very good. Like no matter how bad you are, and you've probably seen this, if you train enough, you're doing two a days, six days a week and compete a lot, you will rack up medals and a bunch of them will be gold. But do you think the same is true for writing where you get what you put in? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I, I don't. I mean, I do think there are people that are just naturally gifted at it. I mean, there's also some people who are naturally shit writers too. <laughs> That's very true. I, I would say I was one of them. I, you know, I I had to go if I had tried to write this book without having gone back for my MFA, it would have never gotten picked up. Um, I, I really needed to put the reps in. I needed to. I needed to remind myself of of many of the things that I had forgotten about 
craft. Um, I mean, you know, this could also get into a longer argument about, well, what is good writing? What is shit writing? You know, like, isn't it subjective? Isn't, isn't what somebody else's shit, somebody else's gold. Uh, I think at a, at a very basic level, if you're not reading all the time, uh, and if you're not reading writers that write the type of books you want to read, um, and, and you're not writing and revising and, and learning everything that you can about what some of the people who've been considered greats, um, and maybe not some, maybe some of the people that are not considered greats, but that, but whose writing spoke to you. If you're not, if you're not reading them and you're not practicing, um, I think talent will only take you so far. I mean, uh, I, I, classic example uh, in the martial arts world, right? BJ Penn, right? Most talented guy in the world, probably could have had an even more stellar career than he than he did, but um, he was infamous for for relying on his uh, his amazing gift. But after a while, that got him passed by. Um, I think I think that's true of martial arts. I think it's true of writing. You see that in martial arts, not just with BJ Penn, but a lot of like championship caliber fighters who got there because they were so naturally talented Mm -hmm. and then when that talent starts to fade away not just in mma but in boxing too i've seen this where then they start getting surpassed by journeyman fighters yeah who just have to put in the reps that's exactly it you saw that with roy jones or you see that with like chuck liddell or you see this with fighters where the guy that they could beat on the way up later on they're the same age same number of fights but now the journeyman is better than they are yep there's there's a story element in that itself right i mean it's it it reads like a book Mm. so i know you've been asked about who your writing inspirations are a bunch of times so (laughs) i won't ask you about that what i will ask you then is related to this topic who are some of your favorite fighters in any combat sports who man See, now you're going to get me to give the cliche answers again. But I mean, you know, sometimes the cliche answers are cliche for a reason, right? Because sometimes these people are amazing. Uh, uh, Anderson Silva always will be uh, incredible for, for me. Uh, and maybe this relates to uh, the, the artist side of me, I guess. But it just his creativity in the cage to me was just, uh, it, it always, he, he had this way of making what he did in there look like he was simultaneously making it up, but was also well-planned. Do you know what I mean? Like the, the, the techniques came off as such that they seemed so spontaneous, but that he knew all along he was going to do it. Um, that, that to me always amazed me. I love to go back and watch his older fights. Um, uh, boxing, you know, uh, I'll tell you, my Ali feels like an obvious answer. I, I, I get more out of like the old, um, Hearns, Hagler fights. Um, I used to be my, my roommate in college, uh, and I, we used to, there used to be a thing on USA. Uh, it was Tuesday night fights. Um, like every, I think every, every Tuesday, uh, go figure. Um, <laughs> but, but we used to watch and, and we'd see some of like guys that, that were not big names at the time eventually become big names. I mean, I'm, I think I remember seeing Andre Ward on there for the first time, uh, uh, Sweet Pete Whitaker on there for the first time, Shane Mosley for the first time. Um, I have a follow-up question then. Okay. I'm sure you model yourself after certain prolific writers. You've mentioned James Baldwin in other interviews, mm-hmm. but what about in fighting? 
Who do you watch and try to mimic? Whose techniques are you trying to emulate? Oh man, I'm going to get clowned for my answers on this. Uh, <laughs> I, I, again, it goes back to to a little bit of Silva, a little bit of Roy Jones, a um, little bit of uh, even though I don't like him personally, a little bit of the Mayweather. Like I'm a big fan of the shoulder roll. I like I like the low front hand. I like the up jab. Um, those those are techniques that I that I feel are uh, and if you notice, I'm talking about counterfighters, right? Like those are, those are guys I, I've, I've always been a fan of the counter. Uh, I'm not, I'm not a fan of the bull rush, uh, take, take two to give one type of style. So, uh, off the top of my head, I would say those, those are the guys I think grappling wise. Um, uh, I, I'm a big fan of Josh Hinger's style. I like the guillotine heavy sort of top dominant game. Um, I, I like the front headlock. I, I like the, I, I'm a huge Darce proponent. I love the Darce. Um, so, uh, much more. And while I, while I like leg locks, I mean, we got a guy in our gym that makes me feel like I've never trained a leg lock in my life. <laughs> um, but, but I still love learning them and I still love trying them out, but I've, I've always found that I've, uh, chokes have been always, um, have always been my, my forte. So I think those, those are some of the names that come off the top of my head. So we've been talking about the social fabric and how things get embedded, right? And uh, the book takes place in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Is that where you also currently live? Yes. Yeah, I'm right outside of Philly. So why I bring that up is because you were mentioning the shoulder roll, counterfighters, and a lot of that comes from the Philly shell and a lot of Philadelphia boxers are known for counterfighting. Do you think that's just been so embedded into the social fabric? If you get into fighting and you're from Pennsylvania, that's the style you just like. <laughs> that's a, that's a good question. I don't. In my case, I would say no, only because I haven't been out in this part of the state all my life, um, and I think uh, I was less. Uh, you know, I went to school in Pittsburgh, um, and then you know, grew up uh, uh, outside of Harrisburg. So, and 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 even then, like that time of my life, I wasn't. Um, as educated about striking as I am now. So uh, it's an interesting point. And, and to be perfectly honest, I didn't even know that. Um, so <laughs> Maybe there's a Philly shell supremacy that, that was invisible <laughs> to you. <laughs> it's, it's, it's Philly's implicit bias, I guess, that yeah. I wasn't aware of. <laughs> Check your bias, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> are you more into the kickboxing side of things or are you more into jujitsu? Or has that changed over time? It's, it's probably changed over time. I, I, I have to qualify my answers on that. I think I'm more into kickboxing in the sense that I'm better at it than I am at jujitsu. Um, but, uh, but I love jujitsu for the way it challenges me and for the way that I feel like I'm constantly learning new things. It's not to say that I don't learn new things in kickboxing because otherwise we'd be having a different conversation. But, um, I, I feel like there is less uh, territory to explore there for me than there is for jujitsu, at least at the level that I'm doing it. Right. Like if I was, if I was still trying to compete or if I was still, you know, trying to go from somewhere anything beyond amateur, then that would be a ridiculous statement to make. But for the level that I'm at as a, as a, you know, 44 year old guy, like I feel like I've explored as much as I'm going to with striking. Like I'm not getting back in the ring at this point. Um, but, but I feel like I have a handle on what I know pretty well. Whereas with jujitsu, it's just like, every time I go in there, I'm like, Oh God, I don't know anything. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and that's, a, that's a purple belt. So it's, it's, uh, 
you know, I, I just, and, and that's, you know, that's the attitude I should have. If I go, go in there thinking I know exactly what I'm doing, then uh, it's time to go. <laughs> Isn't that amazing how a long time ago, if you were an American purple belt, you were like world-class in America, right? You were like one of the best grapplers in America because black belts at that time was so rare. Right. Now it doesn't mean shit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, sometimes you still want to pretend, hey, back in the day, man, purple belt used to mean a lot. <laughs> oh, I mean, don't get me wrong. It doesn't not mean shit to me. Like, <laughs> I, I was thrilled the day it happened. And I know you're not supposed to be, and it's not about the belt, but like, man, that was a huge accomplishment for me because I had to get, some, get over some mental hurdles to get there. Like, it, it took me... It took me some time to to actually get there, and and uh, I was glad it took as long as it did. I'm glad my my uh, uh, instructor uh, gave it to me when he did, and not any sooner, because I don't I will I wouldn't have been ready any sooner. I wasn't sure I was ready when he gave it to me, but um, it's it's uh, yeah, it, it's it's amazing. Are you ever in the middle of training? Then you get an idea and have to leave the mats to go write it down before you forget. <laughs> No, but I probably should. Uh, <laughs> there's there's been some times where like I did I have I've come up with something, but it's been rare because for the most part I'm usually thinking like um, I'm trying to make my left leg and my right leg do what the instructor's <laughs> right leg and left leg did, and if, if like most of my almost ninety nine percent of my brain space is taken up by just just that <laughs> physical coordination, that there's not much room for anything else. So you're the guy raising your hand. Can you show that one more time? No, I, I refuse to do that. I will not do that again. <laughs> Won't, d- doesn't happen. I, I will just go back with my partner and be like, yeah, I didn't get that. Can you, can you, can you how about you go first? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Even when you go, especially with jujitsu, go onto the mass and try to do it. You won't remember it anyway. So no. you just have to go through that. Yeah. No matter how many times they explain it, it's not going to filter in. Yeah. I'm slowing everybody else down. I'm like, oh yeah. The, oh, that one more time. Now I got it. Like, yeah, I never <laughs> need to see it again. No, hell no. Do you have your kids training? Try. I tried to to start my oldest, uh, probably a little too early in jujitsu. I think he wasn't just he just wasn't quite ready. Um, but oh yeah, that's in the cards. That's that's <laughs> well, because particularly because some somewhat selfishly, I will admit to because like I don't want to be driving to like five different sports. I'd rather be like I'd rather be like okay, you're gonna go train and then you're gonna hang out in the lobby while I train and then we'll go home and then we'll go home. So, uh, but, uh, you know, of course you want your kids to know how to defend themselves, especially with kids nowadays. Um, they, they need it. Being a parent now, it makes so much more sense because when you are a parent, you don't have that much time. You're just so busy with work, your own shit and the kid. So having to drive five different places, it's just like unmanageable or impossible. So if they do the same thing you do, then it's like so much better. <laughs> Man, I, I honestly don't know how parents do this with multi-sport kids. Like, I, it, when, and, and to be perfectly honest, I don't know how the kids do it, right? Like, <laughs> when do they get time to be a kid? Like, they, they kind of like, you know, they need time to like just mess around and like, you know, I, the, my boys now like fascinated with Lego. They, they, you know, the action figures they have, they're doing the same thing I did when I was a kid. They're coming up with these screenplay length storylines for their action figures. I mean, they're, they're, they're acting out stuff on their own. They're making lightsabers out of foam noodles. Like, <laughs> why would I ever want to put a damper on that just so they get to play team sports? Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, I do, I do get the benefits of, 
being part of a team and what it means to contribute and and not just be an individual, but at the same time, like I, I feel like an excess of that hinders that that just that natural creativity that kids have. Even if you ask a kid, what's worse, never getting to play or being spanked? I think a lot of them would rather pick being spanked than never getting to play. You know, right? Exactly. Which is not to say spanking is good. It's just to highlight, again, another implicit bias that we think if the abuse is not physical, right. then it's not abuse. Yeah. And there's a lot of ways to abuse. Exactly right. I, I could not agree more. Um, you mentioned this earlier. You're cooking up a new book, and this one is actually about combat sports. So can you tell us what it's about? No. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. I just thought, thought I'd throw you <laughs> off a little bit. See if I see if I can take you off your game, put you on your heels. Uh, no, because I could just edit that out, so it's okay. <laughs> yes. Uh, so it is about um, to uh, to to go back to a phrase you used. It's about a journeyman fighter who um, is slowly, well, maybe not so slowly, losing his battle with uh, CTE, um, which I've actually found I've had to explain that that is not as as common a term as people think. Maybe for this audience it is, but for for others who might not know it, uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy or pugilistic dementia. Um, and because it's me writing this, of course, it is not just about that. It is also about, uh, themes of race and family. Um, so he is a mixed race fighter. His father is white and his father is actually, uh, dying of Alzheimer's. But as a result of his degrading faculties and therefore filters, he's finding out, um, that his father might just be a racist and maybe the reason why his mother left, uh, when he was a teenager. And so he's reconciling this fact with the, the, uh, the idea that he is going in the same direction as his father um, in terms of uh, his physical health and outcomes. Um, but also uh, another wrinkle in the story is that his uh, declining faculties cause a problem um, related to the world of fight fixing. Um, and so it adds a, a sort of a, a, a more a layer of tension to the, the rest of the story going on. So you got a lot of things going on in this book, right? Mm -hmm. And even with three fifths, you had a lot of things going on. So how do you plot and keep track of all that when you have all those elements? Like, do you put no cards on the wall and have strings attached to them? Like you're <laughs> one of those obsessive detectives looking for a murderer. Charlie Kelly looking for Pepe Sylvia. Uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, sorry, always funny reference. Um, so I'm, I, I, from, I've become familiar with these two terms that are like plotter and pantser in the, in the writing community, which I guess means you're either a plotter, which is pretty self-explanatory or a pantser, which means I guess you got to go by the seat of your pants. Um, I think I tend to be more of a pantser in the sense that I'm not, I'm not driven by plot necessarily. Um, I, I much prefer to read and to write characters that are in trouble and let their choices about how to get out of trouble propel the narrative. Um, I, I, I'm not about, you know, it, it's, I, I don't get into, plot heavy books, I, I have a hard time reading them because the characters are usually flat to me. Um, they're, they're, the characters are much more controlled by the, uh, their circumstances as opposed to 
them being sort of a victim to their circumstances. Um, if it seems like a subtle differentiation, but it, it's there, there's definitely one there. Um, so long answer short, yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't really keep track of all those things going on uh, until I'm sort of done. Um, I, 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 as I write and I, and as I do, as I take the characters through what I think they would do. Um, things tend to get resolved in one way or another, not necessarily in a happy way, but there's, there is some kind of resolution that ties all the things together. Looking at it in hindsight, it looks like a lot of complicated things going on, but because of the way you write, it's more like by the end, all those elements are there. Yeah. At least that's what I hope for. I mean, this is only my <laughs> second book, so we'll see. <laughs> so then your writing is more like Anderson Silva than it is GSP. Very improvisational. Exactly. <laughs> calculated improv calculated improvisation that's what i'll call it. yeah so you already know a lot about combat sports but you had to do a lot of research i'm sure for this book so let's say some 14 year old came to you and said how do i become a great mma fighter by the time i'm 20 what would you tell this person i would say i have no idea <laughs> <laughs> you don't have like a, a thing where you first do this and then you take this and then you do that Absolutely not. I, there is no formula. Uh, and, I, and man, when I read some of the, the posts and the fight analysis that you guys do for the site, I don't know shit about combat sports. <laughs> I thought I knew a lot about combat sports until I started reading some of the breakdowns that you guys do. Man, I, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I might be stealing some of that stuff for, for <laughs> to, to put into this. Um, no, I don't think there's, there's no blueprint, man. I don't think there's any formula. Um, I, I to go back to what we said earlier, I think uh, a lot of it would be work hard. Don't rely on talent. Talent won't take you everywhere. Then what about the character in your book? What was their timeline of how they trained for MMA? Yeah, they, he's the, the the background is that he had sort of a junior college, college wrestling background, but his father was a, an old Navy boxer. So that uh, which is it's meant to imply that that may have contributed to his his current all timers. Um, so, so there's been a, a, a mix of martial arts in his life. Mm, so it's more by happenstance. Correct. What about avoiding brain damage? What tips would you give this person as far as smart training and having a long career? I mean, counterfighting is one of those ways, man. I, I, I have never, never been an advocate of waiting in, uh, and taking shots just in the, in the hopes of delivering uh, as many or less shots than I took. Um, I, I may, and maybe that's where some of the counterfighting appeal came to me is like, I, I really enjoyed sparring as, as petrified as I was in every fight that I had. Um, I still enjoyed the experience. I mean, I went back and did it, you know, a bunch of times. So there was something about it I liked, but to me, there was no appeal in getting hit in the face, right? Like there was, I the, nothing, nothing attracted me about getting punched in the head repeatedly. Like to me, the to what was, what was fascinating was, uh, punching without getting punched. Um, so I, I think that gyms that are notorious for hard sparring, um, are also going to be notorious for for short careers, you know, uh, or, uh, and, and or, uh. A, a litany of problems later on in life. So then let's say a different 14 year old came up to you and asked you, how do I become a great writer by the time I'm 20? 
I would say I have no idea because <laughs> I'm still not one. And it took me until I was 40 some years old to even publish my first book. So by 20, I got no clue, man. Um, I think the, I think the advice is similar. You got to put in the reps. Um, you know, uh, talent is great, but I think, uh, hard work and talent is an unbeatable combination. I think something you mentioned earlier too, that differentiates writing for martial arts is, with martial arts, you just do your martial art. You just practice that, right? Whereas with writing, you not only do the reps of writing, but you also have to do a lot of reading. It's it's some of the advice I've taken from some of the best writers, and it and I I think it's the I think it's the best writers that most commonly give that advice that reading is writing, and if you're not reading, how can you hope to be a good writer? Um, you know, and it's not even a matter of uh, the great stories have already been told. So, you know, what does it matter? It's it's really about how can you immerse yourself in all different types of craft, in all different types of voice and style, and and you know, it, other, otherwise you're you're only going to write the same thing over and over again, and it may not be anything anybody wants to read. So, you know, read read the authors who write the stories you want to read and you will you will end up writing the same you know it's the the best advice i ever got was write the book you want to read don't don't write the book everybody else wants to read one of the things that i really respect about writers especially as a martial artist is that by the time you're 20 you can actually be a really good martial arts competitor or even an mma fighter you could even be a world champion yeah but i don't even know if that's possible to be that great of a writer at 20 i think it just takes longer just because you don't need necessarily life experiences to be a great fighter but i think for writing it's different right it's really hard i don't know if there's ever been any great writers where like they've done some prolific work by the time they're 20 right yeah I- I would tend to agree. I mean, I'm sure there there are those in the in the writing community that might disagree with that. I, I'm not one of them. <laughs> uh, I think I do think lived experience has a lot to do with the quality of writing. I, I I mean, I know you know when I when I wrote the screenplay version of this 20 years ago, I, I, it, to be perfectly frank, the writing was not that good. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I had a I had a good concept. But I mean, I taught myself screenplay writing. I taught myself, you know, I did a lot of my own study. It wasn't part of my uh, English education. And it showed. I mean, like, you know, I got a couple people to look at it, um, but they all were like, yeah, you know, it was a nice idea, but not for us. Um, so I, I personally, I do think there is something to that. I think um, th- there's always some wonderkind that, uh, that, that writes the great American novel at 18 or 20. But um you know, I, I think those are those are few and far between. They might even have to lie about their age if they wrote a great novel, right? Because there is such a bias about that with writing. Yeah, yeah, I would I would say you're probably right about that. Uh, although, you know, it depends on the depends on the community in which they write. Like, if it's literary fiction, sometimes those are, you know, those those uh, those novels coming from a younger writer kind of get celebrated, right? Um, but if it's if it's I don't know, some other form of genre fiction that maybe it wouldn't be. Uh, it's, it's a finicky business, man. And, and, uh, it's, it's a weird business. Like, and I'm only in it for just a little bit, but, but it, um, it, it, it's complex. All right. Well, this was a fun conversation. Thank you for your time, John.
Thank you. This was terrific. Thanks for having me on. So where can people find you and your book? Oh man, the weird part where I got to do the plug. Um, so I got, I have a website, uh, johnvircherauthor.com. Um, there are links to the book there. Uh, you, of, of course you can get it on Amazon, but I'm always a proponent of supporting your independent bookstore. So there's a link on there for indiebound.com. Uh, they will connect you to your closest independent bookstore and you, they will order it through them. Um, so you go independence. Um, yeah, that's the best place to find me. Uh, so there are links to some of my essays that I've done on, um, race and parenting for WBUR in Boston. It's the NPR affiliate up there. Uh, actually two of them got picked up by NPR, which is like the thrill of a lifetime. Um, so you can, but there are links to those essays, uh, on my website as well. I'll put all that in the show notes. And so with your book that you're currently working on, when do you think that book will be out? Oh man. Uh, well I've still, I'm, I'm probably about, uh, a month away from finishing this draft. Uh, and then it comes down to, if there's a publisher out there that wants it. So, uh, the, the answer to that one is I have no idea. I'm hoping next year that would be great. Uh, but could be, could be longer than that. We'll see. Wait, if you already published the book, doesn't that mean then your second book will automatically be published? No, no, not at all. It's <laughs> finicky business, my man. Uh, especially, uh, I, w what's cool is the, the publisher that I'm with now, they have what is called right of first refusal. So, you know, they, they get first look no matter what. Um, but that doesn't guarantee they'll want it. So sounds like the same as the movie business where you could have a movie made and then that doesn't guarantee you get a second movie made only as hot as that last one. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you, John. Thank you, Sam. This is great. Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content and along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye.